This is war. Conditions at Hospital No. 1 in Bataan were not too good during the last few weeks we spent there. Patients were flooding in. We increased from 400 to 1,300 cases in two weeks' time. Most were shrapnel wounds for surgery, but 9 out of 10 patients had malaria or dysentery besides. We were out of quinine. There were hundreds of gas gangrene cases, and all our supply of anti-gas gangrene serum had gone months before. There were no more sulfa drugs. We were working in wards when bombers came overhead on April 4. We hardly noticed them. Suddenly, incendiary bombs dropped. They hit the receiving wards, mess hall, doctors' and officers' quarters, and the steps of the nurses' dormitory, setting fire to all buildings, but luckily not hitting the wards. Several enlisted personnel wandering outside were killed. The patients were terrified, of course, but behaved well. The Japanese prisoners were perhaps the most terrified of all. We were all still frightened until two hours later when someone heard the Jap radio in Manila announce that the bombings had been an accident and wouldn't happen again. The morning of April 7, about 10.30, we were all on duty when another wave of bombers came over. The first bomb hit by the Filipino mess hall and knocked us down before we even knew the planes were overhead. An ammunition truck was passing the hospital entrance. It got a direct hit. The boys on guard at the gate were smothered in the dirt thrown up by the explosion and shell-shocked. Convalescent patients picked us up and we began doing dressings for patients hurt by shrapnel. Everything was terror and confusion. Patients, even amputation cases, were falling and rolling out of the triple-decker beds. Suddenly, a chaplain, Father Cummings, came into the ward, threw up his hands for silence and said, All right, boys, everything's all right. Just stay quietly in bed or lie still on the floor. Let us pray. The confusion and screams stopped instantly. He began the prayer as a second wave of planes came over. The first bomb hit near the officer's quarters and the next directly in the middle of our hospital ward. The next wave struck a patient's mess just a few yards away. The concussion bounced us three feet off the cement floor and threw us down again. The beds were swaying and tumbling down. Desks were doing a jitterbug. Red flashes of heat burned over our eyes. But through it all, we could hear Father Cummings' voice in prayer. When the bombs hit the ward, everyone had begun to repeat the Lord's Prayer. Father Cummings' clear voice went through to the end. Then he turned quietly and said, All right, you take over. Put a tourniquet on my arm, would you? And we saw for the first time that he'd been badly hit by shrapnel. The next few hours were a nightmare, except for the way everyone behaved. We were afraid to move, but realized we had to get to work. One little Filipino with both legs amputated, he'd never gotten out of bed before by himself, rolled onto the ground and said, Miss Hook, are you all right? Are you all right? We tried to care first for the patients hurt worst. The great many all over the hospital were bleeding badly. We went to where the bomb had hit the ward and began pulling patients from the crater. I saw Rosemary Hogan, the head ward nurse, and thought for a moment her face had been torn off. She wiped herself with a sheet, smiled and said, it's nothing, don't bother about me. It's just a nosebleed. But she had three shrapnel wounds.
It would be hard to believe the bravery after that bombing if you hadn't seen it. An enlisted man had risked his life by going directly to the traction wards, where patients were tied to beds by ropes fashioned to wires through the fractured bones. He thought it was better to hurt the men temporarily than to leave them tied helpless above ground, where they'd surely be hit by shrapnel. So he cut all the tractions and told the patients, Get under the bed, Joe. He probably saved a good many lives, too. The triple-decker beds were all tumbled over. We gave first aid treatments, then baths, and cleaned up the beds until after dark. Afraid the Japanese would be back again the next day, we then moved the patients to another hospital. Even the most serious cases were moved. Giving them any chance was better than none. There were only a hundred left the next morning. We worked all the next day, making up beds to admit new patients. Suddenly, after dark, we were told we were leaving in 15 minutes, that we should pack only what we could carry in our arms. The Japanese had broken through the line and the Battle of Bataan was over. The doctors decided collectively to stay with the patients, even doctors who'd been told to come to Corregidor. We left the hospital at nine that night and got to Corregidor at three in the morning. The trip usually took a little over an hour. As we drove down to the docks, the roads were jammed. Soldiers were walking, tired, aimless, frightened. Cars were overturned. There were guns in the road and bodies. Clouds of dust made it hard to breathe. At midnight on the docks, we heard they'd burned our hospital to the ground. Bombers were overhead. We were too tired to care. But as we crossed the water with Corregidor's big guns firing over our heads and shells from somewhere landing close by, the boat suddenly shivered and the whole ocean seemed to rock. We thought a big shell had gone through the water just in front of us. It wasn't until we landed that we found an earthquake had come just as Bataan fell. We were on a cargo boat, some went to barges, some helped paddle rafts. But we had an easy trip compared to that of the nurses from hospital number two. It was three in the morning before they got away. Bataan had begun to fall at eight. They were cut off by a burning ammunition dump and waited for hours with explosions ahead of them and Japs a few kilometers behind. Corregidor seemed like heaven that night. They fed us and we slept, two to an army cot. We went to work the following morning. There was constant bombing and shelling. Sometimes concussion from a bomb landing outside would knock people down at the opposite end of the tunnel. The Emperor's birthday, April 29, was especially bad. Bombing began at 7.30 in the morning and never stopped. Several men counted over 100 explosions to a minute. Dive bombers were going after the gun on the hill directly above our heads, and the concussion inside was terrific. The worst night on Corregidor was when a bomb hit outside the tunnel entrance at the China Seaside. A crowd had gone outside for a cigarette, and many were sleeping on the ground at the foot of the cliff. When the first shell hit nearby, they all ran for the tunnel, but the iron gate at the entrance was shut, and it opened outward. As more shells landed, concussions smashed them in against the gate, and it twisted off arms and legs. All nurses got up and went back to work. Surgery was overflowing until 5.30 in the morning. There were many amputations. Litter bearers worked outside in total darkness, groping about for wounded. One rolled a body onto his litter. When he got inside, he saw it had no head. Through all of those weeks on Corregidor, everyone was grand. At six o'clock one evening, after the usual constant bombing and shelling, 21 of us were called into a meeting and told we were leaving Corregidor by plane with 10 pounds of luggage apiece. We don't know how we were selected. 
The pilot hustled us aboard because we were between Cavit and Corregidor, directly in the range of artillery. On that trip, we sometimes almost skimmed the water. There was so much fog over Mindanao that we had to make a forced landing. People on Mindanao were just as courageous as the rest of Corregidor and Bataan. They knew they would be trapped, but cheerfully wished us a good trip and happy landings. At dusk, we left for Australia. This article appeared in Life magazine on June 15, 1942. This is war. Hello, constant listener. This is Edison McDaniels. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in another week or so with another article. Until then, you can support this podcast by telling your friends about it. The best publicity for a podcast is word of mouth, and we'd appreciate your help with that. Also, visit our home on the web at surgicalfiction.com, where you can find out more about us and more about our other podcasts as well. My name is Edison McDaniels. Thanks for listening.